This is BCFM 93.2. That man is not allowed in my pub. No, Lord. I'm not going to physically hurt him. That man. That's assault. I am not bothering you. I am not bothering him. That man is not allowed in my pub. Get out of my pub. Go on. Get out of my pub. You are listening to the Bristol Agenda on BCFM. Anyone that wants to get in touch with us, you've got a plethora of ways. You can follow us on Twitter at Agenda Bristol, or you can contact our very new, shiny WhatsApp number for BCFM. It's 07501 820 075. And uh, producer Ivan Jackson, head producer of the whole station, has even given us training on how to say that number and which bits to say as O instead of zero. So there's no excuses. My name's Tin Hinson. I've got a solo show today um, without Priyanka Ravel. She's, uh, she's on holiday. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, so today we're going to be covering three stories. The council have just served an eviction notice on a site of van dwellers in Henleys. Uh, I spoke to some residents earlier today and they outlined the impact that this decision is going to have on them. So we're going to be looking at this matter in conjunction with, of course, the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, which we've covered quite extensively on this show already. Of course, in the context of the protests, which shook Bristol for a couple of weeks, a few weeks ago, and is currently paused as it makes its progression through Parliament, uh, but is still very much on these vehicle dwellers' minds. Uh, That is because... Although there's been lots of focus on the parts of the bill that attack the right to protest and make it more difficult, uh, it also makes good on a Conservative manifesto commitment to impose new restrictions on travellers. Previously, Bristol has appeared to be following a slightly different approach on this subject. So what is going on here? We're going to be airing an interview Uh, with Becky from Vehicles for Change who represent van dwellers in the city. Next this week, so President Biden announced that as of September the 11th this year, 2021, the US will be withdrawing all of their troops from Afghanistan. We're going to be looking back on 20 years of warfare in the mountainous country and asking what it was all for and what it achieved. And then, how could we not? We're going to be looking at the story that is on everyone's lips and seems to have caused, well, it's united more people than I've ever seen in this country for years and years and years. And of course, it is the uh, so-called big six clubs in the English Premier League confirming that they want to break off and instead compete in a so-called European Super League even Spurs, <laughs> uh, from which, as founder members, they can't even be relegated. We'll be talking to Neil Maggs, host of BCFM's very own sports bar, to ask what the plan could mean for Rovers, City, and indeed the dozens of youth teams that play in the city. Um, but first of all, we're going to have a little throwback to the 90s. 
because we're going a little bit back in time today uh, with the Afghanistan coverage as well. So uh, this is an old classic. We'll see you on the other side for our chat with Neil Mags. This is The Spice Girls. See, this is what happens when uh, Priyanka leaves me to man the ship by myself. I just go crazy, start spinning the Spice Girls. Uh, We are waiting for Neil Mags to give us a call, but uh, I know he's got childcare responsibilities as well. So... Yeah, no shame in him being a little bit late. A little bit of shame, but, you know. Uh, In the meantime, what we're going to do is I'm going to go through a little bit of news that we've covered early in previous editions of our illustrious show. So, something that we were talking about last week, the Greensill story that we covered last week on the show with Riley Quinn has continued to develop So while we focused on the role of David Cameron in the saga, it has since emerged that several senior civil servants, including the head of the Government Commercial Service, took jobs simultaneously while working for Greensill Capital. You know what? The phone's going. And give it it a bit of an answer. Hi, Neil. I'm just putting you through now. And then you'll be on air. Neil, can you hear me? Hi, Tim. Oh. You can. Can you hear me? Yes. It would oh, probably be a, a smoother radio presenter if I could not only do that transition, but also not appear quite so like gleeful of managing to sort of pull <laughs> off that basic thing. But uh, well, here we are, you anyway. Need, you need a PA for that, really. I think you need your own broadcast assistant to do all that. Well, I'm all on my lonesome today. We've got no Priyanka oh, yeah. helping me. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, fending for myself. So, Neil, let's talk football. I I was saying before to the listeners, this seems to have united people that have never been on the same page before. Suddenly, everyone thinks that, you know, money should be getting out of football and that uh, everyone seems united around condemning the proposal for a European Super League. It's interesting. It's interesting. I mean, rarely will Liverpool... And Manchester United fans ever be in agreement on anything, mm. um, but today that does uh, seem to be the case, doesn't it? With the announcement of the European Super League. Yeah, um, could you could you just explain for anyone who yeah, hasn't heard yeah, what what exactly is being yeah. proposed? So it's a breakaway league uh, that's been proposed by the clubs themselves. It's called the European Super League, uh, and it's basically uh, Premier League clubs: Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United, and Tottenham are among 12 clubs who have agreed to join them. Uh, other clubs are the Italian clubs, AC Milan, uh, Juventus and Inter Milan, and the three Spanish clubs, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona and Real Madrid. As yet, no sign of any of the German clubs, mm. Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund, or Paris Saint-Germain, but they have said uh, they will be, it's anticipated, this is a direct quote, um, anticipated that a further three clubs will join. So that could well be them. I don't know, but the the the, um, the ownership system is slightly different in Germany, with um, fan ownership across the Bundesliga having 51% share of um, of the clubs. Mm. So they they've got a few more kind of hoops and consultation to get through. Whereas it looks literally like the the five, which are being called sorry, the six mm. uh, six British clubs, which are being called six English clubs, which are being called the greedy six. That's happening <laughs> on Twitter at the moment. Well, that's it, because they, they, they like to call themselves the big six, but like looking down the table now, I mean, 
they're in first, second, fair enough. But then Chelsea are didn't down in fifth. Liverpool are sixth. Yeah. Arsenal uh, way down in ninth. So well, yeah. I mean, Arsenal. That's the joke. I mean, Arsenal are pretty lucky to be there. <laughs> they're probably thinking it's the only way they're going to get to qualify for Europe. So if I was the Ar- Arsenal chairman, chairman, then I'd probably think it was a good thing. Yeah, I think that where it's been, you know, it's, it's even been condemned by the um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Mm. Uh, he's come out and basically said that um, you know we, that, that we need to sort of look into this a bit more. Um, so it, you know it's, it's a fascinating thing because a lots of people that have criticised it. We have some you know big names. Gary Neville's come out, uh, uh, ex-Man United play, England player, current Sky pundit, Liverpool and Tottenham midfielder Danny Mercy, Wayne Rooney's come out. It seems to be uh, you know people are calling it a bonfire of greed. There, there is. It's quite ironic. Whilst there is obviously truth to that, it's quite ironic that many that have benefited and were pioneers of the Premier League itself, uh, which was criticised for breaking away 20 years ago, are calling this out for greed. When many would say that the you know the boat has well and truly sailed in football a long time ago. Mm. I mean, it, it is a more extreme version of it, isn't it? But I mean, maybe you could sort of take us back because I, I mean, I, I don't remember the origins of the premier league so this was in was it 92 yeah so the premier league kind of came it was a splitting away from so prior to um prior to the um to premier league there was the first division second division third division and fourth division which was effectively run by the english football league so the fa uh, created a breakaway league called the fa premier league um which basically has kind of rebranded it and uh, obviously the first division became the championship and uh, league, so effectively, League One is what Bristol Rovers are in. Is the old third division, really? Right. Um, and it broke away uh, exclusive deal with Sky TV. That was before Sky was even showing any of the other football league matches. And they are, in in essence, uh, an authority to themselves, accountable directly to the Premier League. Um, that's a you know, lot of people feel that money uh, went sort of, you know, that uh, what kind of you know, huge amounts of money came in from from television rights. Some mm. of which did drip and does drip down to the lower league clubs. Some, many would argue, not enough. Um, and what it has is sort of inflated the wages of players. It's inflated the cost of, of stadiums. Inflated the cost of tickets. So in effect, it's sort of led football to become. I guess the Premier League is, is a global, successful, branded mm. model that's watched all over the world. You know, in South America, in, in you know many parts of Africa, they get people. You know, people in Thailand and in the and the in Southeast Asia is huge. But it, the, you know, they're, they're catering more to a global fan base rather than, I guess, what would be the traditional core mm. uh, fan base connected to the city in which a club is. So, so it has its pros and cons. One of the negative things of the Premier League, I guess, is the fact that. Um, you know the, the, the gulf between the, the finances of lower league and, and Premier League clubs is, is ginormous. Well, that's like it. They say the like Championship playoff match is worth what it's like tens and tens of millions of pounds. That one match, basically, isn't it? Because the, the gap huge. between yeah, late yeah. League One and Premier League, and then when yeah, you add in even, even if you come wreck down the parachute payments, add up to a hell of a lot. So I can... and, I, and actually, I mean, some clubs, you know, some people say that some clubs deliberately go up to go back down again to get parachute payments to then go back up because they'll have more money <laughs> and be more financially sustainable. But yeah, so, so the Premier League has changed the makeup of football. Um, but this coming along, you know, will probably have an even bigger shift and change if it goes through. Mm. Well, I, I guess, yeah, there's there's three things we wanted to talk about. The, uh, well, well, we'll finish on that of, you know, will it actually go through? But first of all, 
I mean, obviously Rovers and City, they're not in the Premier League at the moment. They're, so uh, is this actually going to affect things from a Bristol point of view? Well, I mean, not not in the moment directly. I mean, both clubs are uh, owned by big, you know, multi-millionaires. Uh, obviously, Steve Lansdowne is a, is a local boy. He's from Formbury, just down the road from Bristol. Well, is is um, from from uh, from the Middle East. Both of those clubs effectively are um, reliant upon you know individuals, uh, and and you know if they remove their uh, funding and their source from the club. The, both clubs could be potentially in trouble. However, you park Rovers for one minute because the likelihood of them getting in the Premier League in our lifetime is pretty remote at the From moment. Man, they look like they're in the relegation season. battle yeah. to go down. However, especially this season, uh, agreed. However, Bristol City, you know, the stadium's built, the brand new training ground's built. Uh, they've got a Premier League manager, really, in, in Nigel Pearson. They are kind of ready on every level to get into that Premier League. So it could have an effect upon them. Um, it will. It could potentially have effects on things like what you just said, parachute payments, money that comes from Sky. Because one of the fears, I guess, is if this um, breakaway league does come to fruition, I would imagine that Sky TV would probably channel more money into that than they would into the Premier League. Right. That's the fear, I think, that it will have a big financial impact. And also, the Premier League themselves, um, if this does go ahead, will probably be forced to ban those five clubs this this is the rumour mill that they potentially I mean whether I think there's a bit of game of bluff at the moment between the Premier League and between the clubs but they could effectively remove Premier League status for for those six clubs sorry the greedy six right oh yeah 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 keep with the official terminology please there all right, and, and in terms of youth clubs and, you know, even lower league and amateur clubs and things like that, so there's a relationship between the Premier League and their, you know, the big multi-billion pound TV rights. And uh, Yeah, there is. There is a small percentage that drips down there. The Football Foundation is the uh, grassroots community wing of the Premier League and lots of money and gate receipts and television rights comes through you know those big six as well mm. um, into into the coffers of football foundations but then subsequently drips not just down to grassroots leagues but also to community football community sports so things with you know programs with with young people young offenders uh, supporting women's football supporting disability uh, supporting football in um, areas of deprivation mm. across the country so it, you know it's a small percentage but it, it but when you think about the the, the actual physical amount of money, it is quite a lot. Mm. Uh, you've also got the, the kind of uh, Premier League Kicks programme. Premier League Kicks programme is something that goes on in schools and youth clubs all across the country and directly is connected to uh, deprivation areas and cities. Um, how, how that will look and how that will be effective is it, it, difficult to say at this stage, but if money is seriously redirected away from those clubs out of English football and TV rights away from uh, uh, going into... English football into this European football, then that will automatically have on a knock-on mm. effect. And in my experience, where people make cuts, is usually at the bottom, not at the top. Mm. Well, I mean, are there any positives from this? I mean, you know, people, as you say, there was a, a very angry reaction when the Premier League was first created, and you know, now people sort of get on with it and watch it, and you know, commercially, it's definitely very successful, and there's. You know, billions of people watching it around the world. I guess that's 
you know something to remember when we're looking at this is we think of like these football clubs and you know Reading and Swindon and Burnley and all these and uh, that they're English teams but the majority of fans now are not in England they're you know in Brazil and and Argentina and China yeah that's the the key point I think the football clubs have recognised that the key uh, you know their money uh, doesn't come from fans that come to watch matches anymore it comes from a global television audience mm. um so you could say yes it's it's broadening the sort of global brand even more so it's building upon what effectively is you know the champions league at the moment and you know there is another thing football fans are notoriously emotional there is a bit of hysteria around this they don't like change whenever mm. change you know comes in i mean in, in sport fans in general there's a tendency to kind of kick against it and want to honor traditions so there is a bit of that i think um mm. you know some people today i've been involved in the sort of twitter and facebook debates and conversations about this are saying well actually really what's the difference between you know, the champions league and, and this um, mm. one of the key differences is this is invitation only so obviously at the moment in theory you know it means you set up a club I mean, if, if we set up bcfn united and we went up through all the the uh, all the the non-league leagues. Then we came into the football league. We went up and that we ended up in the Premier League, and we finished in the top four. Mm. We could be in the Champions League. Yep. No longer will that be the case because this is invitation only, um, and obviously it will have an, an effect upon the, the what happens with the Champions League now. But it, it kind of it's a, it's it's a slight, it's an American model really of invitation only stuff, which has potential kind of impact on that pyramid system. Mm. And I think one of the great things about uh, not just English football, European football, you know, in general, is that you know you can start small and grow to become huge. You know, we've seen we've seen that happen. You know, less frequently now because no money tends to dominate the game. But you can do that. We've had teams like Porto, um, Monaco. Porto won the won mm. the Champions League. We've had teams like Monaco, uh, by Leverkusen, getting into finals in recent times. Mm. None of, none of which are in this invitation only. So um, there is that side. The other side to this, which I think is interesting, is that um, the Champions League have changed very recently how they do um, the qualification. And a lot of the clubs apparently didn't like that. Mm. And I think post-COVID, they realised how delicate their position and situation is and how they are effectively hamstrung by UEFA. So this is really a move for the big clubs to assert their authority. And, and, and some people think that what this is really is about is, is a bargaining tool. This right. is basically calling their bluff, saying, we want more power, we want more money to go to us, um, so we're not kind of controlled by the governing bodies. A similar thing happened to players, Tim. I don't know if you remember the Bosman ruling when players used to be tied to contracts and then there was a court case with a player from Holland called Bosman. And effectively what that meant is that a player could pay out their contract and leave and they could leave clubs whilst they're in the middle of a contract. So it became, the power kind of came back to the players. The argument being is that the means of production, footballers are the ones that are to be paid more, mm. and, and then there's no capital wages, all that kind of stuff. So, and I think football clubs are taking their lead from that, saying we're not going to be you know, held to ransom by these kind of draconian governing bodies mm. like UEFA, FIFA, the FA. We want freedom. We are the people who create this product. We want more money. So mm. I think this might kind of drag on a bit and, and there's rumours of it going to the European court so it could be a little bit of a sort of shadow box between them both but it's been interesting to see what happens because you know UEFA you know the FA Premier League could now if they wanted to they could remove dock points mm. from any of those top six you know as could the other the Spanish and the Italian league 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I guess that it is a little bit of, as you say, it's, it's kind of an elite negotiation where they you know they'd risk sort of cutting off their nose to spite their face yeah it's you know quite it's similar to the to the sort of brexit negotiations yep. i think with uh, with the eu and, and and great britain there's a little bit of that there's a bit of bluff there's a bit tell there's not giving your hand away there's threats mm. there's sort of stuff going on um yeah you know they're similar to that i think and they see themselves i think mm. football clubs as the sort of great free marketeers they want access to the global market like Boris did, really, mm. and, and the Tories did. And, and you know, the the, 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 the governing bodies like UEFA, similar to EU, want to sort of have some sense of control mm. over the over the product. It's, it's, a, it's essentially a power struggle, really. I guess the difference with Brexit is that Brexit was a bit more popular than this. I mean... Uh, well, indeed, yeah, that's yeah. a very good point, yeah, yeah. And, mm. and so you, at the moment, it doesn't look like 17 million people get behind this. No, um, you know, there's a monumental kind of uh, uh, you, well, definitely. I mean, I, I, I want to have a look a little bit more what's happening in the other countries. You know, mm. what the reaction is from Real Madrid fans, from Barcelona fans, and Man United fans are spitting feathers about this because their chairman uh, is basically it's number two. Uh, has come in as the as the, as the um, assistant chief executive for this, this new organisation. Yeah. yeah, the Glazer, yeah, Joe Glazer. So, um, he, and he isn't popular anyway amongst Man United fans. You see him as somebody who takes more out of the club. If you look at mm. all the money, you know, the, the following the money takes more out than he puts in. Um, so, the United fans in particular are Liverpool fans. You know, Liverpool. Gary Neville made a really good point, and he said, "I, I, I don't. What he said, I don't mind so much Chelsea and Manchester City because they're kind of." Late, late into this, they're both clubs that are bankrolled by you know Russian oligarch and a, and a, an oil, a, a Middle Eastern oil baron. But clubs with the tradition of Arsenal, uh, Manchester United, and Liverpool, founded on a real core mm. community base, closely connected to the working class parts of their own cities. I just can't see how this is going to play out at all. Mm. And so, uh, I mean. I guess, like the Brexit thing, the, there's some very optimistic people who are like, well, maybe this will be a moment when everyone will realise, you know, it'll make people see the structural forces that are controlling their lives and the fans are going to rise up. And, you know, as you say, like in the Bundesliga, where the fans control a 51% stake of the club, do you, do you see there being much appetite for that sort of structural reform uh, well, yeah, that's a really, really good point and a really good question because the, the, the yeah, and I think the COVID sort of post-COVID people have started to reevaluate how football is run anyway. Mm. You know, it's completely unsustainable, particularly in, in in this country. And maybe this is an opportunity uh, for all the all the rights, all the say, all the control over football clubs have gradually drip by drip over the years been taken away from communities and fan bases and. You know, having left say over their football club. Now maybe this is a chance. Mm. Maybe this is a time to, as you say, the Bundesliga has a slightly different model. We can start to introduce that. Fans vote with their feet. Don't go. I mean, that 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 would be the key. I mean, the, the counter argument to that is, would they really care if they're getting TV rights anyway? But I think mm. if fans really, really object to this and they organise, you know, across Europe, um, it would be very, very difficult for. For this to be pushed through and also the, the other thing is there's nothing stopping maybe fans uh, lobbying the, the broadcasters if the broadcasters refuse to back it if sky or espn or, or whoever or bt refuse to um i mean the americans probably will, will anyway but if they refuse to to even show the matches 
Mm. then they've got nowhere to go. So I think that, that, that it can also change how football clubs are run and you know, the, the astronomical wages. That one, one, one interesting point somebody made to me today is that if it does end up having a huge financial impact upon what trips down to the Premier League to the lower league clubs, mm. is that maybe now, you know, you've got people on stupid money, you've got people on silly money at Bristol Rovers, that you think, mm. you know, it's just not sustainable. Every football club bar about two in the whole pyramid is losing money week on week. And COVID has really, really shown um, how, how fragile um, football is. And maybe, uh, you know, this is an opportunity, you know, to link to your Brexit thing. Perhaps, you know, we can do direct deals with, you know, there's more freedom to, 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 to re-collaborate and freedom to go in the direction you want to go in. And I think actually this is an opportunity to, to reconnect to communities, to start thinking again about fan ownership to start mm. to for, for, for you know cities communities and fans to take their football clubs back I mean that's a very optimistic way of looking at it um, you know money has helped football in, in, in many regards but it's definitely become you know you've got players at the moment Tim like mm. uh, Han- Hanlon from Bristol Dortmund he's rumoured to be you know Barcelona Real Madrid Man United Man City are after him that's all you're talking 600 grand a week mm. It's just insane. It's crazy, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, it is optimistic, but on the other hand, uh, well, you know, anyone who's listening who's a Rovers fan and is hoping that they stay up this year has uh, got to be almost supernatural levels of optimism anyway. So uh, maybe it's a good place yeah. to start from. Um, listen, Neil, thanks for talking to us today. It sounds like you're, yeah, on, you're, uh, you're, your kids are... Oh, you can hear them. Can you hear in the background? I've got my headphones on. Yeah, they're, they're just about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dinner, I think. yeah. They're going yeah, wild. Uh, cheers, mate. Well, um, where can people follow your work? Uh, just follow me on Twitter at Neil Mags too. So I, I do, you know, bits of um, uh, documentaries, uh, podcasts, and I write articles. So yeah, at Neil Mags too. He's a hard worker. Nice one, mate. We'll speak to you again soon. Bye bye. All the best. Cheers, Tim. Take care. Bye bye. That was Tones and I with Dance Monkey. Right, thank you very much again to Neil Max for joining us there. Right, with you know, without Priyanka in the building, I'm, uh, my timekeeping's terrible. We've got to squeeze in two more very important stories, so uh, we're going to go straight over to those. Uh, so, first of all, a little update on the Greensill story that we covered last week on the show with Riley Quinn has continued to develop. So, while we focused on the role of David Cameron in the saga, it's since emerged that several senior civil servants, including the head of the government commercial service, so that's the £60 billion procurement operation at the heart of government, simultaneously took jobs working for Greensill Capital. So, I should stress that these jobs were fully declared to Treasury officials. So, in that sense, it seems like the line between corruption and normal operation of the hyper-financialised UK economy is, in fact, very hard to draw. Again, so that's something that we talked about in our interview with Riley Quinn last week. Uh, So, go back to the BCFM website to find that interview or search for the Bristol Agenda on your podcast platforms. So adding to the picture of how lobbying and these commercial and political relationships get intertwined, the ex-Bristol Northwest MP Charlotte Leslie revealed on Twitter last week that while she was an MP, she was approached by 
a waste management company that wanted to pay her £25,000 to, quote, advise them, uh, which would involve two days of work a month. So when the invitation was made, the unnamed company declared that there was no conflict of interest because they did not operate in her constituency. However, strangely enough, within months of the offer, an application for a waste processing plant operated by the same company was made in Avonmouth. Uh, So make of that what you will. So recently, government contracts have been in the spotlight because of £18 billion worth of coronavirus-related contracts that were made during the first six months of the pandemic, most of those with no competitive tendering processes. Meanwhile, contracts totalling £1.5 billion have gone directly to companies with connections to the Conservative Party. So Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, was found to have acted unlawfully by not disclosing these by a court. But he hasn't he but he has maintained his position as a minister and he certainly hasn't faced any legal sanction. Indeed, his involvement seemed to have had a personal element as well, even including the employment of his friend and local pub landlord on a multi-million pound PPE, personal protective equipment contract. Despite that company that the landlord, his purple landlord, set up having zero experience in the sector. So suffice to say, this particular deal didn't turn out to be a great one for taxpayers, with that company being forced to withdraw masses of faulty equipment and reporters even finding burnt-out examples of the company's products in the chief executive's garden, which he claimed had been set on fire accidentally. All very strange. So... While all these allegations have been levelled at the Tories, it's clear that the issue of money in politics reaches out across party lines. So scores of Labour figures have taken jobs in the private sector, often for companies that previously they'd been in charge of regulating. Uh, So something that I know in a bit more detail about, because I've done academic work on it, are the connections between ministers in the health service uh, so this Alison Pollock's research suggests there's a revolving door between the Department of Health and the healthcare industry Alan Milburn the minister from 1999 to 2003 subsequently would was paid 30 grand a year to advise Bridgepoint to finance Alliance Medical Match Group Medica and Rabina Healthcare Group Patricia Hewitt the minister from 2005 to 2007 used to work for Arthur Anderson Consulting, a firm which made huge profits during drawing up the private finance deals and in 2000 co-authored a report on how much money was saved using PFI. Um, of course, you know, the, the figures has not borne that out. PFI is, is due to cost the NHS and British government a hell of a lot of money. Uh Yeah, so, I mean, I could go on. There's lots and lots of different examples. um, But as I said before, we're going to run out of time. Uh, So more recently, there's been a spotlight on the Labour Council in Liverpool where inappropriate relationships between councillors, council officials and developers have been alleged. However, Brett Christopher's book, The New Enclosure, gives many, many examples from across the country to show that this is not the exception but the rule. So from across the country, across different political parties, you know, the, the appearance of 
undue relationships between private companies and the councils that are supposed to be regulating them, that are making planning decisions that can, you know, hang in the balance between a piece of land being worth 10 grand and it being worth 10 million grand, uh, uh, 10 million pounds. Um, you know, there's, there's just too many examples to, to list. So given all this is the case, what is the answer here? It is clear that we cannot pretend that corruption is only something that happens in other poorer, less white countries. Corruption is clearly integral with how the British economy works these days. So what can we do about it? Text in if you have any great ideas. Um, you can get in touch with us on our new WhatsApp number 07501820075 at Agenda Bristol on Twitter uh, and we will keep following these stories. So the next story that we're going to be covering is the news today that Bristol Council is evicting uh, he's served an eviction notice on the van dwellers in Hen Grove. We've spoken to people from the site. They've told us a little bit about it. There's 25 people there, including some families, people living in their vans on the site. And, of course, all this is in the context of the police crime and sentencing bill, which is currently passing through the courts, uh, which makes good on a Conservative manifesto commitment to attack travellers. Um, so the we're going to be airing now a little interview that I did a couple of a few months ago now with Becca from uh, Vehicles for Change, and they had this statement on the police crime sentencing and courts bill, and I'm quoting from the Vehicles for Change website here. Firstly, it's unlawful. It violates existing legislation by directly targeting communities with protected characteristics under the Equality Act. It also directly breaches Article 8, the right to a home. It goes against decades of education and campaigning for rights won by our ancestors. And secondly, it works against positive efforts that have been made to build bridges between communities, authorities and stakeholders at a local level. So I'm going to play now the interview with Becca, Becky, sorry, from Vehicles for Change. There's lots of reasons to be living in a vehicle anywhere. Uh, it may be their heritage. They may be, have been born into that lifestyle and, and never known any other lifestyle. Um, it could be a current necess- necessity, an economic necessity for work. They may have transient work. It may be a lifestyle choice, wanting to live uh, as just an alternative and, and different lifestyle. And for some people also, there is no other option and they may be what would be considered borderline homeless. So lots lots of different real, uh, reasons, to be honest. And there's no kind of one stereotype of somebody living in a vehicle. So your organisation, Bristol Vehicles for Change, thinks it's important that some sites are protected for people living in a vehicle? Yeah, Bristol Vehicles have changed. We're supportive of the different communities and the different ways of living in vehicles. So we think it's really important to to develop sites and facilities for those people that 
want to access them or need to access them. And also I think it's really important to recognise that not everyone will want to be on a site or could afford to pay to be on a site. So protecting the right to live transiently and roadside as well is also important. Going specifically to Picton Lane, what's the backstory to what happened there this morning? So the guys at Picton Lane have been at other sites and in other areas of Bristol and have been continually evicted from those sites and areas. This is quite a good example really of how landowners and local authorities continually evicting people living in vehicles is an effective way to communicate with or deal with the community. There's currently nowhere else for the people living in the vehicles to go. The temporary sites the council set up for COVID are actually full at the moment so there are, there are no other site options. Um, and yeah, they have seen a situation where um, they have found a space that they thought was suitable um, mm-hmm. to live in and um, they're now risking eviction. They, they don't have anywhere else to go and it's just this continual process of um, you know, being evicted from site or roadside. Nonetheless, though, I mean, obviously one reason for, that people get evicted is because the landowner wants to take possession back of that site so they can develop it. But mm. there, are, there are examples of when local residents have got concerns as well. Mm. Um, so what would be a more productive way forward that would alleviate some of the concerns that local residents have but still provide van dwellers with somewhere to live? Well, there's the the sort of bigger and wider solutions that are, are being discussed at the moment, and that's to develop um, a variety of options for people living in vehicles, depending on the areas they're based and the things that they need. So, obviously, sites and facilities that are community-led, ideally by vehicle dwellers, um, would you know, that's one of the key things that we would look for. We're also looking to develop a dialogue around not using enforcement as the first port of call when dealing with vehicle dwellers. So if there are concerns with the local communities or the local authorities, that we open a dialogue around what those concerns are, how as a community, living in vehicles and people living in houses can work together to relieve those tensions and just have a bit of a better understanding. Um, Enforcement is extremely expensive for, especially for local authorities and also for landowners. And actually community engagement and discussions around alternative options is far cheaper and far more effective. So you're suggesting that the council could actually save some money or rather redirect some of the money that they currently spend on legal fees and bailiffs towards something else. Yeah, so that, yeah, and it's a conversation that we're starting to have at Bristol City Council and we hope will obviously develop and evolve into something is exactly that, is if enforcement is, is incredibly expensive especially when you get into sort of lengthy court proceedings and actually the sort of working together on community engagement and, and trying to relieve those tensions and also actually providing sites is cheaper for the council than enforcing. So in 1998, Bristol City Council actually saved, I think it's £190,000 in one year on on clear-up and eviction costs just by providing one site in Bristol. There we go. So that was Becky from the group Vehicles for Change. Uh, So this is a breaking news story. Uh, It's happened today. Uh, We've heard that the the current residents of the site are going to be challenging 
the uh, the notice that they've been given from Bristol City Council. There's some sort of technical reasons why that might work um, as well. Uh, but we will be continuing to cover this story and the wider issue of people in vans at the moment in Bristol. Before we play our final item, which concerns the 20-year anniversary of the war in Afghanistan and President Biden's announcement that he's going to be withdrawing from there, a reminder that today is the last day, so you have until midnight tonight to register to vote uh, if you want to vote in the local elections. Um, I did it earlier today. All you need is your national insurance number and your address. Uh, and if you don't have an address, if you're no fixed abode, uh, it's there are ways around that as well. It's slightly more complicated, but you can do it. So uh, urge people to do that. Right. Remember this. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. We are joined in this operation by our staunch friend, Great Britain. By destroying camps and disrupting communications, we will make it more difficult for the terror network to train new recruits and coordinate their evil plans. Initially, the terrorists may burrow deeper into caves and other entrenched hiding places. Our military action is also designed to clear the way for sustained, comprehensive, and relentless operations to drive them out and bring them to justice. At the same time, the oppressed people of Afghanistan will know... So um, that was, of course, George Bush announcing the um, beginning of the of bombing of Afghanistan uh, back in 2001. Uh, the war in Afghanistan was launched in the wake of the September the 11th attacks on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon in America. Uh, however, since then... Uh, it's estimated that 100,000 uh, Afghan civilians have died as a result of the war. The Taliban is mostly funded by growing opium to make the drug heroin. Uh, and although the Taliban were defeated quite quickly during the war, they are back in control of the country again now. Um, about 450 uh, British soldiers, 454 fatalities of British soldiers uh, in the Afghani war. So not a great deal to celebrate there. Um, and yeah, as we say, the as you say, the President Biden now announcing a withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan after 20 years, making it the longest conflict in US history. Uh, so now we're going to play a little extract from uh, the podcast Radio War Nerd discussing Afghanistan and giving an insight onto some of the strategy or lack of strategy that might have contributed to these problems. Well, there wasn't a lot of strategy in it at all. I mean, basically, yeah. there there was some combat early on. I remember, um, I think we both remember the the lead up to the war where there was a lot of talk about Afghanistan graveyard of empires, and mm -hmm. then the invasion took place, and 
in, uh, I think, the beginning of October 2001, like Mm -hmm. less than a month after Mm 9-11. And by November, I think the U.S. and its allies had occupied Kabul. Um, The Taliban fled first to Kandahar and then dispersed throughout the south or into Pakistan. And then the graveyard of empire trope seemed absurd because look how easily we we took Afghanistan. And, you know, we took it. There was a big turn at Mazar-i Sharif. I remember speculating in one of the first war nerd articles, like, what do we do? Like, you know, give somebody a bus of gold or a, or I don't know, something like that. And then uh, the Taliban kind of collapsed or, as it turned out, went back to being civilians in a classic mm-hmm. guerrilla manner. So there was that weird vertical curve from, oh, my God, we're going into the graveyard of empire to, mm-hmm. ha, 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 Afghanistan is nothing to, okay, um, now things had better be fine, but we don't know how to do that. And that's mm-hmm. that became really clear. Like, uh, well, what, it was what even would worse. Make fine. I, I remember it was you know graveyard of empires. That's where the Soviet Union collapsed. Which we did an episode on the Soviet war in Afghanistan. I think it's quite exaggerated about what brought the Soviets down and how badly that war really bled the Soviet Union. But whatever, they didn't win there. That's for sure. Um, but the way it was. It appeared to have been done so easily, so effortlessly, with almost no American casualties. Gave people, I don't know if you remember that, that, I mean, I, I, there's no other word for it, hubris. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. from sort of November 2001, probably for about two years until, well, maybe about three years until like May of 2004. When So that was Gary Bretcher and Mark Ames talking about the experience of the Afghan war, uh, which... President Biden has announced, following on from uh, that he's going to be sticking to the withdrawal agreement that was negotiated by President Trump and that all the US troops will be pulling out of Afghanistan. I think it, it remains to say that one of the reasons that was given for the Afghan war was to liberate women in Afghanistan. And it is true that the level of patriarchy there, the intensity of patriarchy is stronger than in this country. It's very difficult. We shouldn't play that down. Uh, of course, since in the last 20 years, it's been estimated that about a trillion dollars has been spent on the war and untold misery. So Perhaps that could have been better spent if that was all your aim. Right, you've been listening to The Bristol Agenda on BCFM. Priyanka will be back next week uh, and we'll have uh, we'll have each other to bounce off as well as you. Right, here's your news. Goodbye. BCFM is an award-winning community radio station for Bristol. Bringing you national news on the hour. Live from the Sky News Centre.